Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Christine Marin about the role of thyroid in fertility and preconception. For women who are struggling with fertility or maybe not getting pregnant as quickly as they think they ought to, I really strongly advocate to check their thyroid function. Unfortunately, it's not one of the labs that's universally recommended. It ought to be because it plays such an important role in our fertility and then in our ability not only to get pregnant, but to maintain a healthy pregnancy. Women with hypothyroidism, if you are able to get pregnant, pregnant can then have increased rates of miscarriage and a lot of other sequelae that can happen from blood sugar to blood pressure to even birth defects. It's just one of those very critical hormones in fertility and pregnancy. Clinical signs or symptoms are things like fatigue or hair loss, cold sensitivity, weight gain, slow metabolism, depression, irregular periods, dry skin, muscle aches. But above and beyond that, there's other risk factors for why you should be screened for thyroid. When we think of risk benefit, like what's the risk? It's not a fancy test. It's not invasive. So potentially huge benefits. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility fad, fact, or fiction. Here's the latest from Dr. Shala. Have you ever noticed if you're really paying attention to the present moment? Are you driving in your car on the way to work, thinking about what's going to happen at work, and you get to work and you realize you didn't even know how you got there? Most of us are paying attention to the future or paying attention to the past, but not really spending time in the present moment. And I never really paid attention to this idea until I took a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. And I realized that I spent so much of my time in the past or in the future, but not really in the present. And it's kind of a strange concept because you think, well, yeah, of course I'm here. I'm in the moment. I'm in the present. I'm not in the future and I'm not in the past. But our thoughts are often in the past. You're washing your dishes and you're thinking about your appointment tomorrow, what's going to happen. You are thinking about a past cycle. You're thinking about past things that have happened but not really focusing on washing the dishes or not really focused on being at the beach or driving your car. And that might sound silly. Like, why do we really need to pay attention to the present moment anyways? What's the reason? Mindfulness is a practice that can be the answer to this overwhelming, constant worry. Mindfulness is defined as paying attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment. Mindfulness is something that can be practiced anywhere. You can be, like I said, washing the dishes, but you're really paying attention to the way the water feels on your hands, the temperature of that water, the sounds of the water, the smells around you. You're paying attention to all the details at hand and really being focused in the moment. 
The three key components of mindfulness are number one, the intention. Why are you doing what you're doing? Two, attention, focusing your mind on the present and letting everything else go. And it's estimated that over 40% of the time we aren't present with what we're doing. And number three, attitude. How do you pay attention? What is the quality of your attention? Mindfulness is about letting go, non-striving, and acceptance. When you practice mindfulness, it is a wonderful way to manage all the stress and emotions that you're going on, especially for those who are dealing with infertility. Now, there are a number of benefits that can come from the practice of mindfulness, enhanced resilience, improved coping in stressful situations, improved quality of life, and measurable reduction in stress. All of these things that I think would be invaluable to the person or the couple going through infertility treatment. I am a huge proponent for the practice of mindfulness. And while it might sound silly and it might seem like, how is that going to be helpful? Take a few minutes and try to see if you can incorporate mindfulness practices into your day. Paying attention to your breath, paying attention to the sights and sounds around you when you're on a walk, as opposed to listening to music or listening to the meeting, being on the phone with somebody. Just really paying attention to where you are and what's going on in that moment and really listening to your body. So much of the time now we interact with technology that we're not really listening to our bodies. We're on the phone, we're on the computer, we're on tablets, we're in meetings, but we're not really listening to what's going on with our bodies. Now mindfulness can be done as a meditation practice. There are a number of ways to practice mindfulness outside of meditation, like I said it could be walking, it could be washing dishes. There's mindfulness that can even be practiced with eating. I think this is a great place for mindfulness because so many of us, when we eat, especially when we're alone, we are on the phone, we're doing work, we're watching TV, we're doing anything but really paying attention to eating and not really listening to our bodies, paying attention to our food, paying attention to the colors, the smells, the taste of our food is something that can really make us apt to overeat, eat foods that may not be good for our bodies or make us feel good. We're out of touch with our feelings and how certain foods make us feel. That's another great way to practice mindfulness. I hope that you get a chance to try out mindfulness practice in your day-to-day. I think it's something wonderful that you can add just a few minutes a day. See if it's something that you find is beneficial. I encourage you to listen to my episode with Josephine Atluri, episode number six, Mindfulness and Meditation on the Fertility Journey. That is a wonderful episode that I think will give you further information on mindfulness and meditation. I hope you found this helpful. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoy today's interview. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Christine Marin about the role of thyroid infertility and preconception. Dr. Christine Marin is a board-certified physician and the founder of a virtual functional medicine practice in Colorado, Michigan, and Texas. She's also the co-founder of Hey Mommy, a platform dedicated to helping women navigate a healthy and happy motherhood. Dr. Marin was introduced to functional medicine after struggling with pregnancy complications and recurrent miscarriages. A functional medicine approach helped her address her own underlying health issues associated with gut infections, hypothyroidism, hormone imbalance, and mold toxicity. 
Now a mother of three, she's devoted her professional life to helping women optimize their health before pregnancy, thrive postpartum, and get their lives back. Welcome, Dr. Marin. Thank you so much for being here today. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to speak about this topic because, honestly, it's very important, as you know, but I think often we don't speak about it a lot. Yeah, it's so ubiquitous and common, and I think it's important that women are informed and know what to look for and what to ask for. Yeah, and I feel like I'm seeing it more and more these days. I don't know if that's just me, but I feel like every time I turn around, there's somebody with abnormal thyroid labs. I think it's unfortunately common. I mean, I grew up in a household where my sister and my other sister and my mom are all hypothyroid. So it took me a while to figure out that I was also hypothyroid, but it is a very common problem and something I think we need to be looking for in all our patients. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the other issues is often what happens with me. I don't know if you also experience this. I have patients who have abnormal thyroid labs. Their doctor is refusing to treat it because they're in the normal range, right? Quote unquote, the normal range. And I've had so many discussions with other doctors who are like, why do you need to treat this? There's nothing wrong with it. Not really understanding why it's important in thyroid, which we'll get into later. But I think it's important really to touch on that, that sometimes you're not in the normal range for pregnancy, but you're in the normal range for what is considered normal according to conventional labs. Yeah, for sure. You are so passionate about women's health, thyroid, and preconception. How did this become your passion? Like you mentioned in my bio, I struggled with complications during my pregnancies. Even prior to that, I grew up in Colorado and sort of had a more holistic upbringing, really was interested in holistic medicine and all of that at a pretty young age. And it started for me in college. I had period problems and they said, take birth control. And I was like 18. And even at that point in my life, I was like, I don't want to just take a pill that's going to hide my symptoms. What's really wrong with me? So it's just always digging for answers and motivated to find those. And fast forward many years when I had my first child, I had gestational diabetes. I took a deep dive into nutrition, really trying to understand why my green smoothie was causing hyperglycemia and, you know, why my healthy foods and this healthy lifestyle that I perceived was very good for me wasn't working. But the real deep dive came when we were trying for a second baby and went through recurrent pregnancy loss. And I knew there was something wrong with me because at the same time I was struggling with health issues. And you know, when you're trying to get pregnant, Mm -hmm. but you're also struggling with a bunch of health issues, it's too much at one time, right? You got to step back and deal with these health problems so that you can have a healthy baby and a healthy pregnancy. And I eventually, you know, came to that realization and took that step back. And thyroid actually played a big role at that point. And digestive issues and fungal overgrowth were really problematic for me. But addressing all of that really came from a functional medicine perspective, because I do have a lot of respect for physicians like you and my husband and many of my friends are physicians. And I saw, I think it was five different specialists at that point in my life, And there just were no answers. And I think they for sure had my best interest at heart, but in their paradigm and in their kind of toolbox, there just wasn't the stuff that I needed. So I had to really go outside of that toolbox. And that's where functional medicine just changed my life. At that point, that was something I needed for my personal life. And it became something I just had to pursue professionally as well. 
Yeah, I think a lot of physicians who are interested in integrative medicine or functional medicine, they have their own personal story, which motivated them to look for answers and then realize like, hey, wait a minute, this is also going to help my patients. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I was referring everybody like, you need to go see a functional medicine doctor. I'm like, okay, I need to be a functional medicine doctor. How can I ignore all these things? It's funny when you think about it, and I know you trained as an osteopathic physician, which some days I'm like, oh, I wish I would have done that because maybe there's more of an approach. But osteopathic physicians have become almost the general conventional doctor these days, and a lot of the training has been lost. And so you still are getting that same training where we're not looking at lifestyle. We're missing mm -hmm. a whole piece, which yeah. is so important in so much of what we do. The system's just not set up for it. Physicians, you know how they operate. They've got 15 minutes with patients. It's just a time mm -hmm. thing. It's insurance. It's just the system isn't really set up to deal with these problems. When it comes to the thyroid, why is it important in fertility? You know, oftentimes when we think of thyroid, we think of metabolism. Is that affecting how are we gaining weight? Are we losing weight and all of that? But it has a huge role in preconception period and pregnancy. Can you explain a little bit to us about why we should pay attention to thyroid health when we're trying to conceive? From the fertility perspective, that can be a deal breaker. So I think for women who are struggling with fertility or maybe not getting pregnant as quickly as they think they ought to. I really strongly advocate for women to check their thyroid function. Unfortunately, it's not one of the labs that's universally recommended as a screening test. It ought to be. Basically, all of the major colleges like the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, none of them recommend universal screening. But there are so many different reasons why we should be screening and like what some colleges have deemed like aggressive case finding because it plays such an important role in our fertility and then in our ability not only to get pregnant, but to maintain a healthy pregnancy. Women with hypothyroidism, if you are able to get pregnant, can then have increased rates of miscarriage and a lot of other sequelae that can happen from hypothyroidism, from blood sugar to blood pressure to even birth defects. So it's just one of those very critical hormones in fertility and pregnancy. And as you said, I think sometimes we're just looking for those symptoms not everybody's going to have symptoms, and we'll get into that. But what kind of symptoms should someone be looking out for that might signal that they may have thyroid dysfunction? Any kind of clinical signs or symptoms are things like fatigue or hair loss, cold sensitivity, weight gain, slow metabolism, depression, irregular periods, dry skin, muscle aches. There's so many of them. But above and beyond that, there's other risk factors for why you should be screened or tested for thyroid. And that includes any history of preterm birth, miscarriage, or infertility. It even includes multiple prior pregnancies, personal mm -hmm. family history of thyroid issues or autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes or any other autoimmune disorder, high body mass index or obesity, anemia is one, high cholesterol, hypertension, and then the presence of thyroid antibodies. So thyroid peroxidase antibodies or thyroglobulin antibodies, but those are really rarely checked for or screened. So there's other sorts of things on that list for sure, but that's where I go back to like, well, I'm pretty sure everyone I know fits in that category. I was just going to say, that sounds like everybody. I don't know yeah. who you haven't covered yet with all those things. I know. And so I think it's important for everybody. I screen all my patients for it. Obviously, I'm seeing patients for infertility, but I mean, to see how many I pick up, I think everyone yeah. really should be screened, especially if you're trying to conceive. Yeah. Uh, I agree 100%. And especially like when we think of risk benefit, what's the risk? 
what's the risk of checking a TSH at the very least? You know, it's not an expensive test. It's not a fancy test. It's not invasive. So what's the risk? Potentially huge benefits. So a basic TSH, that would be great to start. But why also would it be better if you could get a full panel? Can you tell us a little bit about a full panel and why you should get those done? Yeah. So when I test my patients for thyroid, I look at TSH, free T4, free T3, assuming they're not pregnant, thyroid peroxidase and thyroglobulin antibodies. I also like to see a reverse T3, but I don't feel like that is like a deal breaker. But I really like to look at T4 and T3 because T4 helps us understand what your thyroid is actually making. Sometimes when physicians order a TSH, TSH is a measure of what your brain is sort of mm -hmm. signaling to your thyroid gland to make that thyroid hormone. It is a great lab, but it's not perfect. And when a TSH is normal, it doesn't always rule out hypothyroidism. You could have other conditions or secondary hypothyroidism and have a normal TSH. And so if you see somebody with a normal TSH, but maybe the T4 level is low, that might prompt further studies or investigation. T4 is what your thyroid makes and then has to get converted to T3 in your peripheral tissue. So that conversion happens outside of your thyroid gland. And when somebody's not converting well, so let's say they have a great T4, looks good, but their T3 is really low, that mm -hmm. might explain some symptoms, but also prompts us to look further at what else is going on. Is there some digestive issues, toxins, infections, malnutrition? I mean, what else is driving this? Because maybe it's not the thyroid, but a conversion issue that is causing still this basically hypothyroid state. And so it just goes back to really trying to figure out where this is coming from. Yeah. And I have a hard time with, you know, we do labs, we get a TSH back, it comes back in quote unquote normal, maybe like four or yeah. 4.5. Their doctor's like, hey, that's normal. Why do you want them to be treated? <laughs> I mean, as a fertility physician, you know, 2.5 is the upper limit of normal for anybody who's trying to get pregnant. And that is not functional medicine. That is not alternative medicine. That is what ACOG, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, those are guidelines from them and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. So those are major guidelines that are just not always, I think, understood or well-known. And that's where I think women have to come armed with the knowledge and knowing, like, my TSH has to be less than 2.5. And doctors can't know everything, and some doctors are not going to know that information. And so, especially, you know, maybe you're seeing primary care and they don't work with a lot of fertility patients, which... As you know, it's like where patients go when they're going to get pregnant a lot of times, not to a fertility physician. I mean, that's where they start because they have to get a lot of times referred to their doctor. And so, yeah, I think if you have a TSH that's over 2.5 and, and even for patients who've had pregnancy losses, it may need to be dialed down even further than that. And totally. I know you like your levels even lower than that. Yeah, I try to titrate the medication so that their TSH is like around one, like between one and two maybe. But, you know, there is even indication, like you said, even if your TSH is normal, there is still a consideration to treat for patients who are trying to get pregnant, especially if they've had a history of miscarriage or have positive thyroid antibodies, so have Hashimoto's. Right. There are a number of people who have a even normal TSH, but they have elevated antibodies. Yeah. And so if they just do the basic screening, they would have not seen any of that. Which is pretty much what's always done, right? We're speaking a lot about hypothyroidism. 
really kind of assuming because most patients really have hypothyroidism. I very rarely see somebody with hyper and I don't know about yourself, but it's not as common. So for those who are listening, we're really mostly speaking about hypothyroidism here. Yeah, agreed. Hyperthyroidism, I definitely see on occasion, but probably one fiftieth the time that I see hypothyroidism. We were talking a little bit about pregnancy loss earlier, and can you talk a little bit about the connection between hypothyroidism and pregnancy loss and why, again, is it more important for us to look deeper at labs? For sure. There have been lots of studies, actually, looking at thyroid and TSH and how that influences a risk for miscarriage. So there are multiple. One I have pulled up in front of me from Negron colleagues. They looked at women who had normal thyroid function but had thyroid peroxidase antibodies and saw increased rates of miscarriage and premature delivery in those patients. Mm -hmm. And they showed that treatment with thyroid medication could help decrease that risk. So there's multiple other studies who looked at similar sort of findings where an elevated TSH conveys risk for you know problems in pregnancy, problems with infertility, increased risk of miscarriage, problems with premature delivery problems with gestational diabetes, problems with blood pressure. And there are both maternal risks and right. risks on the side for babies. So mostly where I've talked about the maternal risks, but in either side, it's not something you want. That first mm-hmm. trimester, T4 is so critical for baby. And so when I say T4, I'm talking about thyroid hormone or for moms who are on thyroid medication, like levothyroxine or some derivative of that. I use tyrosine a lot of times, but anyways, that T4 hormone crosses the placenta and is super important for babies. And basically the neonatal complications of hypothyroidism are preterm birth, slow birth weight, developmental delays, cognitive problems, congenital malformation, also death and miscarriage. Baby's brain development is really dependent on mom's T4. Right. And that's another reason why we really have to pay attention. So someone may not have a history of pregnancy loss, but they may be at risk of having a a developmental problem with Mm -hmm. their pregnancy. Follow labs closely. I think in pregnancy and fertility, it's really important to check thyroid labs very frequently. We're not checking about every six months, like every four weeks, checking Mm -hmm. labs, making sure we titrate the medication to the right dose. We're not making you hyperthyroid it's well tolerated, you feel better. And then once you do have a positive pregnancy, making sure that you test it and then your medication may need to be changed. Absolutely. I think most women need a 25 to 30% increase in their thyroid medication, which is also this big hole, right? Because women get pregnant, they're on thyroid meds, and they're like, don't see OBGYN for to like mm-hmm. eight or nine or 10 weeks of pregnancy. And by that time, it's like, I would have liked to adjust your medication six weeks ago or whatever it is. So yeah, I always tell my fertility patients or my patients who are trying to get pregnant, as soon as you have a positive pregnancy test, likely we're going to need to increase your dose of thyroid medication by 25 to 30%. We'll follow your labs really closely and go from there. I totally agree. That's definitely something to pay attention to if you're someone on thyroid medication, making sure you get tested immediately once you have that positive pregnancy test. And even like just going back to guidelines, I keep talking about the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinology, but the reason I bring it up is because these are the guidelines that people don't always know. And one of the statements they have made is that this is actually per the ATA, the American Thyroid Association, between 50 to 85% of women on thyroid medication or LT4, which is levothyroxine, need to increase their medication during pregnancy. And they suggest an increase by two additional tablets weekly, so nine tablets instead of seven, 
gives about a 29% increase can effectively mimic gestational physiology and prevent maternal hypothyroidism. Meaning for patients who maybe don't have the benefit of working with you or me and like can really work with our provider to do this, I think it's important to discuss this in advance with your endocrinologist or OBGYN or whoever's caring for you. But as soon as you have a positive pregnancy test, according to the American Thyroid Association, you might need to increase by two tablets weekly. That's like the very simplistic view. Okay. Yeah. So definitely be aware. You get check in with your doctor. And if you can't get an appointment, alert them yeah. that you have hypothyroidism. You need to get seen earlier. Because as you said, most people are not getting seen. They're maybe even doing just a Zoom meeting with a doctor until like 10 weeks. So yeah. a lot of the thyroid that we see is autoimmune thyroid. So there's this genetic component, environmental component to that. Can you talk to us a little bit about autoimmune thyroid disease, mainly Hashimoto's? Again, we're going to really focus mostly on hypothyroidism here. Tell us a little bit about Hashimoto's and the connection between genetic and environment there. We've already thrown out these TPO, thyroid proxidase, and TG, thyroglobulin antibodies, these terms. And these antibodies are generally positive in patients who have Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune condition, which eventually causes hypothyroidism. I always tell patients this is a two-pronged approach with Hashimoto's. One part is thyroid hormone replacement. The other part is the autoimmune disease. Hashimoto's itself is autoimmune. That's an immune system issue. And so how do we sort of calm that piece down? And when you mention genetics, environment, the other big, huge one is the intestinal hyperpermeability piece, which is why that gut health, people call leaky gut, plays such a big role with Hashimoto's. But, you know, Hashimoto's, like that genetic predisposition, we can't really change so much. But environmental trigger, intestinal hyperpermeability, that's where we can really focus on things. So when we talk about environmental triggers, I think like very stressful events that may have happened, like loss of a loved one or I don't know, med school, pregnancy. We know that pregnancy is a huge trigger for autoimmune disease. Maybe it's a miscarriage. Miscarriage can also be a trigger for autoimmune disease. And then intestinal permeability. There's a huge correlation between patients who have Hashimoto's and patients who have SIBO. SIBO is small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is the most common infection responsible for many symptoms of IBS. And so if you're listening and you're struggling with any IBS symptoms, just know there can be a strong correlation between that and Hashimoto's or thyroid. And so I always like to really investigate that. I can't remember the exact study. I think it was 54% of patients with Hashimoto's also had SIBO. Mm -hmm. um, so whether you're symptomatic or not, if you have Hashimoto's, make sure you're talking to your provider about SIBO. And somebody may not even realize that they have gut issues. Honestly, I think I see so many patients that have issues with that, but they don't realize because we've become so accustomed to have symptoms of bloating or gas after meals or maybe constipation. A lot of people don't realize that they are constipated, right? They think going every two days or every three days is normal. That's how they've always been. But in fact, that can be a sign that there could be an issue with going on with their gut. Yeah, for sure did this myself. I had digestive issues that started in med school, but they weren't like life altering. I was like, mm -hmm. eh, whatever. I can live with it. It wasn't like a huge deal. It wasn't like crazy bloated, whatever. I just went about my day. It became a big problem for me right around that time when I was trying to get pregnant and I had moved into a new house and mm -hmm. later found out that house had mold. And so I think those women who have the underlying digestive issues, we're going to sidetrack here, but can be very vulnerable to the effects of mold, you know, in mm -hmm. their environment. I'm talking about like the toxic types of mold found in water damaged buildings. But nonetheless, yeah, gut health and digestion is super important. 
your grandma talks about that and we like laugh about being regular and all that, but it's super important. And that is how we eliminate toxins and estrogens. And if people are dealing with digestive issues, I think the sooner you address it, the better. Because it's also linked to all kinds of autoimmune disease and also all kinds of health issues. So now today we're talking about thyroid disease and autoimmune thyroid disease and that relation to gut health, but it also goes into everything else besides just thyroid abnormalities. And yeah. so, and you said like, same thing, you know, I had issues with gut health in college and I just learned to live with it. I didn't know anything. And I've been to many doctors and someone listening, maybe been to many doctors and they just told me hey, it's IBS. This is what it is. You're a woman. You're high stressed. It's IBS. And you have to then take a look at, which I want to talk to you more about nutrition. And is there a link there now between that and thyroid health? Yeah, for sure. And just going back to that intestinal permeability piece, and there's in the medical literature, there's two things that cause increased intestinal permeability, mm -hmm. which you all know as leaky gut, and that's gluten and SIBO. I think there are more things than that, but that's what's in our literature. So gluten is a huge one. I think with anybody who has autoimmune disease, it's important to remove. It goes back to risk benefits. Like what's the risk of taking it out of your diet for three months and seeing if you feel better? I think right. it's always a good idea for people who struggle with autoimmune or digestive issues. But nonetheless, I mean, that nutrition piece plays a big role with thyroid and it's very bi-directional when it comes to gut and thyroid. So our gut that's where we absorb nutrients. And those nutrients are things that we need for thyroid function. So iodine, yes, but like zinc, mm -hmm. selenium, iron, B vitamins, all of those are very important for thyroid health. Protein too, and certain amino acids like tyrosine are important for thyroid. So if we're malnourished and we're not getting enough of those nutrients, that's an issue. And sometimes it's not that we're not eating healthy foods, it's mm -hmm. that we're not digesting and absorbing the right. nutrients from those foods. And so just making sure not only that we're eating nutrient-dense foods, but we've addressed any sort of underlying gut health issues. And back to SIBO, a hallmark of SIBO is low B12 and low iron. That's something we see very commonly on testing because they're having malabsorption because of SIBO. So yeah, like I mentioned, it is very bi-directional in terms of like where the gut affects your thyroid function and then your thyroid function affects your gut. Right. And as you said, you could be eating very healthy, but then you can't absorb it or vice versa. Maybe you just don't have a good diet and you're missing out on the micronutrients because you're focusing on more of the macronutrients. And we know most Americans are probably eating about 50, 60 percent of their diet from processed foods if they're following a standard American diet. Mm -hmm. And so they're missing out on all the micronutrients, as you mentioned, things like zinc and selenium, iodine, which are important for thyroid function. Yeah, for sure. It's an issue, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier too, just with conversion between T4 and T3, I see a lot of conversion issues for people who have digestive issues. And so I don't think the science has really sussed out exactly why that is, but in a way our gut microbiome is actually its own kind of endocrine organ mm -hmm. and responsible for a lot of complicated things that we don't totally understand yet in science. I think that the gut microbiome, a population of trillions of organisms does a lot in our bodies. And one of the things it plays a role in is conversion of thyroid hormone. So that's back to where like gut influences thyroid again, and then circle back to them. But then thyroid tells your gut to make digestive enzymes and the thyroid is responsible for really signaling your intestinal viscera. So it tells like liver and gallbladder and intestinal motility, you need thyroid hormone 
to have good digestion. Talking about our gut health, I know you do a lot of testing for your patients doing stool tests. I do a lot of urine testing and breath testing Mm -hmm. and stool testing for gut stuff. So if someone doesn't have a provider who's doing all those things, what kind of things can they do to make sure that they're supporting optimal gut health to help support their thyroid? Let's say you have an autoimmune thyroid disease, you're worried about supporting your gut health. What kind of things should you be working on? That's a really good question because I think typically what people first think is like, oh, I'm having IBS symptoms. So they start eating a lot of sauerkraut, fermented foods, and taking a probiotic. If the digestive issues are related to SIBO, bacterial overgrowth, that can actually get worse by adding in probiotics. Now, not antiprobiotic. If you're somebody who doesn't have any digestive symptoms, you're otherwise healthy, you want to prevent problems, definitely, you know, you can take a probiotic and eat fermented foods and all that's very good for your gut. Eat foods high in FODMAPs. Those are certain kinds of sugars, essentially, that feed your gut microbiome, but people with IBS sometimes don't tolerate those certain kinds of foods. So really, if you're symptomatic or dealing with autoimmune disease and looking to heal the gut, at its simplest, it's remove and replace. So remove the Mm -hmm. infection, remove gluten, replace digestive enzymes. So some really simple ways that are low risk is adding in digestive enzymes with meals that can just take a little pressure and stress off your digestive system. And that's really what thyroid helps you do too. But um, especially if you don't have a gallbladder, that's it's important to add in. I usually have my patients add in gallbladder. You can do bitters, things like that. Mm-hmm. Things that really encourage your body to help digest food. Also, just getting into that parasympathetic relaxed state when you eat. That's mm-hmm. super important because that's that rest and digest place where many of us are so stressed and are just like fight or flight eating in the car. Yes. It's just not a great place for us to digest food. And so really paying attention to that and working Mm -hmm. on stress and giving yourself some enzymes and all of that is important. And then when I talk about remove that underlying gut infection, I mean, you could try like a broad spectrum trial of herbs. There are some products out there like one called Candybactin AR and Candybactin BR. I sometimes use that with patients for eight weeks. Biotics has some FC-cidal dysbiocide. You could try that. I mean, that might help. What are we treating? Is it fungal overgrowth? Is it bacterial overgrowth? Is it a parasite? But if you do herbs, they're usually broader spectrum. I check with your doctor, make sure they're cool with it. You're not taking any medication that will interfere with it, whatever. But generally like low risk and worth a try, especially if you're not in a place where you can access uh, a functional medicine physician or do a lot of this advanced testing. Yeah, I think remove is a huge one for people trying to remove processed foods, processed seed oils and gluten, as you mentioned, start there. I think that's a huge piece for a lot of people that aren't already doing that. And then, as you said, the stress eating, eating in, in the car, eating in a meeting. And this is where I often tell people to try to practice mindfulness is Mm -hmm. really sitting there with your food. We've been so accustomed to sitting with our computers, sitting with our phones, sitting with a meeting or driving that we we don't really just sit and focus on eating, which is helpful for us to really, like you said, get into that rest and digest state and really be able to digest our food. Yeah, totally. And that takes us a little bit into stress. Why is stress problematic for thyroid function? That's a good question. How does stress really impact your HPA axis? So when we talk about HPA axis, it's H is hypothalamus. It's in your brain, P, pituitary, in your brain. A, A, adrenals, it's above your kidneys. And then really HPTG, thyroid, 
and mm. gonads or ovaries. So, you know, our hormones and our thyroid are both downstream and some of us more than others are going to be influenced by stress and just depending on how sensitive our HPA axis is to that kind of stress. And so I do wonder, I mean, I'm not really ever sure on how much of a role stress plays mm -hmm. in somebody's hypothyroidism. I think with most things, it's multifactorial and there's lots of little things filling the bucket. And so it's like, the stress probably plays a role. And then the gut infection plays a role. And like, you know, maybe somebody doesn't even have Hashimoto's. I still see plenty of hypothyroidism in patients who do not have Hashimoto's disease. Mm -hmm. And Hashimoto's is the number one cause of, of hypothyroidism in the U.S. Iodine deficiency is the number one cause in iodine deficient kind of places. But that said, we don't really eat a lot of iodine. And iodine is a really tricky kind of mm -hmm. nutrient because I think too much is a problem. Too little is also a problem. But think that probably plays a role with some women as well, not having enough iodine, micronutrient deficiencies. I think all of that sort of adds up. And stress is really hard, honestly, too. I get that question a lot about fertility and stress is so hard to quantify, but I think stress isn't doing anybody any favors. You're not mm -hmm. going to eliminate stress. It's just manage, you know, practicing those mindfulness techniques, doing things to make sure you're slowing down at the end of the day to help try to mitigate stress. And the other thing yeah. I wanted to mention here is that, you know, you may live in a home where you're doing the same thing as everybody in that home, but you're somebody that's affected by things in the environment or the stress or your living situation because everybody's predisposition is different. I wanted to talk a little bit about environmental toxins and maybe heavy metals and what kind of impact that has on thyroid function. Yeah. Again, just back to the ubiquitous point of things where we all are exposed to toxins. The more mm -hmm. we can limit them, the better. Some in particular that I think about with thyroid are halides. So fluoride and chlorine and bromine or bromide. These are things we get exposed to every day. Some of us more than others. I advocate for things like fluoride-free toothpaste. I use hydroxyapatite instead. Really avoiding tap water. There's a lot of chlorine in that. Being careful when you shower, showerhead filters or water filters, all that stuff is very important. And it's always, you don't have to be perfect with this, but just avoiding it as much as you can. If you go to the pool, shower afterward. Don't work indoors at a swimming pool. I mean, I just think mm -hmm. it's a lot of chlorine exposure. So fluoride and those other halides can also compromise your iodine levels because iodine's right next to those on the periodic table. So those could be important. Pesticide, and like you mentioned, heavy metals play a big role in thyroid health. They also can play a big role in your conversion between T4 and T3. And then things like endocrine disrupting chemicals like phthalates and things that you'll find in plastics and personal mm -hmm. care products and fragrances. We know these are endocrine disruptors, EDCs, mm -hmm. that influence our hormones. Thyroid is a hormone. So just like all those other ones, living that low-tox lifestyle is super important when it comes to thyroid. I think thyroid and gut, I mean, your brain, I don't know, all of our, we it, like our whole body takes a hit from those toxins. I, don't, I can't think of anything good that comes out of environmental toxins, but it's unfortunately one of those things that we have to be knowledgeable about and just take those little steps in the right direction. If you don't know where to start, most people start with organic food, filtered mm -hmm. water, eventually get to their personal care products and cleaning products and things like that. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think the water is a huge piece, especially someone who's dealing with thyroid disease and exposure to the chlorine in the water or the fluoride in their drinking water. It's really important to get a water filter, whatever that means. Some kind of filtration mm -hmm. is better than not. And sometimes right. bottled water, now you're exposing yourself sometimes to just glorified tap water. Totally. With BPA. BPA. <laughs> So that's worse than you probably just drinking out of the sink. So getting any kind of filter, whether that's a carbon filter, it's better than no filtration. If you can get a reverse osmosis filter, that would yep. be great. Any of those things that you can do, I think, is beneficial. And it takes us back to avoidance or removal. That's the main piece here with mm -hmm. environmental toxins, trying to avoid when we can. There's so, so many places to look, whether it's your cleaning caddy or your kitchen and taking it one step at a time. I think the kitchen mm -hmm. is a huge place because the food mm -hmm. we eat, plastics and Teflon. Every time I go to like a VRBO, I'm just surprised, I guess, mm -hmm. at all the fragrance and the chemicals and the plastic spatulas. And this is part of my normal life at this point. I've been doing this for so many years and have swapped stuff out so many years ago that sometimes then you get that little glimpse into like, oh yeah, it's just like standard American diet. It's like standard American lifestyle is Teflon and plastic. We're used to that because like you said, and but if I look at myself from 10 years ago prior to doing the work, then I didn't know. And I was somebody who bought into all of the fragrances and all the things because unfortunately yeah. that's been marketed as that's clean. Having your laundry smell like peaches and cream or summer breeze but we've actually just dirtied your laundry by adding phthalates, which then you're wearing uh -huh. it all day. And if you're someone who's dealing with thyroid dysfunction, now you're exposed to phthalates all day. It's not going to be a good idea. So one step at a time. We don't want people to get overwhelmed. But, you know, the environment can play a huge role in taking care of your thyroid. Yeah. Progress over perfection. One step at a time. Just chip away at it. What are your thoughts about patients using natural thyroid medication mm. or any supplements. I see a lot of argument about using Armour thyroid or desiccated mm -hmm. thyroid. So I just wanted to get your opinion on that. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. There are over-the-counter thyroid supplements like thyroid hormone replacement, stuff with glandulars in it. Mm -hmm. So standard process is a big one. I mean, there's a lot of other ones out there. Patients come to me and they'll say, somebody recommended this and they started taking it. And I can say like 10 out of 10 times they've been hyperthyroid or their thyroid's been off. We're very precise. I mean, the way that we dose thyroid medication, 50 mm -hmm. micrograms, 88 micrograms, 100 micrograms, 112. They're very specific doses and it's not something to play with. And yeah. so I think it's really important if you have hypothyroidism to just work with a doctor who can help, who's familiar with using thyroid medication and can help you titrate to the right dose. So I don't ever mm -hmm. recommend over-the-counter thyroid hormone replacement or, you know, mm -hmm. the glandular kind of stuff. And then when it comes to thyroid medications, we've got sort of two classes. One class is the natural desiccated thyroid, and then we have synthetics. Natural desiccated thyroids would include things like Armour thyroid, Nature thyroid, WP thyroid. There's some compounded versions out there as well. So I have used them in the past personally, professionally, and I still prescribe them on occasion. But over the last mm, couple of years, I think there have been like three different recalls for subpotency, particularly of T4. So I will still prescribe them for certain patients, but for patients who are trying to conceive and planning to get pregnant, I actually prefer using the synthetics. And for a lot of patients, I prefer synthetics as well, um, especially for like patients with Hashimoto's. What I find a lot of times is that there's some malabsorption there. 
And so I prefer to use a T4 medication. And specifically, I really like Tyrosin because it's like a very clean T4. The generic is levothyroxine. So mm-hmm. levothyroxine is way cheaper. But if there's malabsorption, SIBO issues, I like to use other kinds. But nonetheless, when we talk about synthetics, the generic is levothyroxine. Name brands are things like Synthroid, Tyrosin Solution, Unithroid, Lavoxyl. Can't think of anything Mm -hmm. else at the time, but those are all synthetic T4 medications. And then there are also synthetic T3 medications. So when you take a natural desiccated thyroid like Armour, it is a combination of T4 and T3. What I see in some patients is they get too much T3 and not enough T4. And when you're trying to conceive, it's really important that you have enough T4 and you don't want all that. You don't want too much T3 that's going to suppress your TSH. So I typically convert those patients over to a synthetic T4. And then if they really need some support for T3 because their conversion isn't great, then sometimes I'll use some synthetic T3 as well. I like to separate them out because you can titrate the dose better. You know, so like if you're on armor and you need to increase your dose, you're going to have to increase T4 and T3 together because it's a combo pill. And then that's where their T3 often will be too high. And I don't want anybody to have too much T3. It can make you feel anxious and like you drink 10 cups of coffee and... Some patients tolerate it, but it's not what I'm trying for. I use synthetic medication as well, but I know sometimes patients are asking questions like, well, what can I do? Can I do it naturally? And usually I'm treating and then telling them to do all the lifestyle things that we talked about to support their thyroid health. But I don't think it's a good idea for someone to just try to fix it with lifestyle because that's not going to get us anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's not. And it's like, you can't just add iodine either. Sometimes people Mm -hmm. think like, well, I just take some iodine and my thyroid function is going to be better. That never made anybody's thyroid function miraculously better overnight. I think I sort of slowly trickle in iodine rather at a very pretty conservative dose over time. And it's important, but like Mm -hmm. too much can also cause problems. From the perspective of doing things naturally, I think the better way to frame that, because I understand where you're coming from, if you're one of those people who's like, I only want it natural. Mm -hmm. Really, the better way to frame that is what's the risk-benefit ratio? What's the lowest risk intervention? And then how does that weigh against benefits of whatever particular intervention you're looking at? And if we're talking about synthetic thyroid hormone versus natural, you can argue for lower risk actually using the synthetic stuff. Yeah. Obviously, because we're doing this for conception, for any issues with fetal development. And so there's huge risks involved if we're not getting the thyroid where it needs to be. Yeah. Like you need enough T4. And that said, I mean, have there been pregnant patients on armor who have done fine? Yeah. I do think some patients who are on armor who have adequate T4, this is where testing is important, you know, they could have adequate T4 and adequate TSH on armor. I was on armor with my second pregnancy. Knowing what I know now, I would have been on synthetics. But, you know, my thyroid Mm -hmm. was fine. And I think there are definitely patients out there who are fine, but you need an experienced practitioner. And I would prefer synthetics, you know, just making sure that your T4 is adequate. Yeah, I agree. It's good. I'm all about doing natural things, but I know when it's important to. That's why I like integrative medicine or functional medicine, because we are in the middle. It's a little bit difficult to be in the middle sometimes, I'll say, but... (laughs) I know. I very much live in the middle (laughs) with a lot of things. And the last two years have really reinforced that. You know, I'm like, it's still in the middle. Yes, I agree. It's good to accept both sides because there's importance that comes with conventional treatment Mm -hmm. or integrative treatment, functional treatment. So just really having that balance is important. Yeah. Tell me... 
how listeners can connect with you. The best place, if you go to my website, it's drchristinemarin.com. And then you'll find me on Instagram at drchristinemarin.com and Facebook, same place, drchristinemarin.com. And you also have a website for your Hey Mommy. Yes. Thanks for mentioning that. Mm -hmm. So Hey Mommy, it's H-E-Y-M-A-M-I. So on Hey Mommy, we have lots of articles there. This is like a joint project with my colleague who you know and friend, Alejandra Carrasco, who's an MD. And she and I are sort of soul sisters and BFFs and have a lot of common sort of opinions when it comes to all this stuff. So we share lots of that insight on Hey Mommy is on, um, it's Hey Mommy Life on Instagram. And then our website is heymommy.com. And we have a really good comprehensive preconception guide on there soon Mm -hmm. to come pregnancy guides and all that kind of stuff. But we're busy. We're really busy right now. You have a lot of good information on there. I am all for that platform that you started. You You have a great Instagram. So definitely check that out as well. I really try to encourage patients to find a little bit of joy in every day if they can. Tell us a little bit about how you cultivate joy in your life on a daily basis. Oh, on a daily basis. The first thing that comes to mind is swimming in the ocean. I just got back from a much needed vacation in Mexico and every day I just got in the ocean and it like really literally figuratively just helped to sort of rinse away some of the stress of the last couple of years. That said, I don't live near the ocean. I live near the mountains though. It's just really important for me to be in nature. I think hiking, getting in the ocean, like just being outside and being in nature. These are things that bring me a lot of joy and balance in my life. And honestly, I don't do enough. I'm trying to get back to that place. The ebb and flow of life and the balance of all things. All good things. I mean, nature for sure. So many people are spending so much time indoors. I think now it could be even worse. After the pandemic, there's a lot of people that now work from home. And so they're not even really, you know, walking around outside from their car to their job. So they're just staying yeah. indoors. And so being outside in nature, I think, is such an important point. So I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom with listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to chat. The Fertility Journeys Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review or tag us on Instagram at Fertility Journeys Podcast. This will help us to spread awareness and reach new listeners. Episodes drop every week, and you can learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.